if you have a copy of God's Word, if you could grab it and turn with me to the book of Acts, the fifth book in the New Testament after the Gospels. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 this morning. This is a very famous passage. It's known as the day of Pentecost. It's the day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on God's people. But I think it's important to note this is obviously not the first time uh, that the Spirit has been in the Bible. The Spirit's always been and uh, was definitely a part of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of references to the Spirit. Uh, But there is a couple of places where it's predicted by the prophets that the Spirit, it would come in a new way in a way that it had never come before. Joel, in chapter 2, verse 28, the prophet says in effect that one day God's going to bring enormous change in the world. And he will do it when he pours out his spirit. And the day that the prophet is talking about is this day. Acts chapter 2, known as the day of Pentecost. So follow along with me as I read God's holy and inspired word. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's significant. We'll talk about it in a little bit. So everyone's in town for Pentecost, people from all over the known world. And at this time, uh, and at this sound, the, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask the Holy Spirit to come and to help us this morning. Let's pray. Spirit, I do pray that you would come in power. This morning and do all the things that the Spirit does that we learn about in Jesus' teaching in the book of John. Would you come and convict us of our sin? Would you come and convict us of righteousness? And would you show us most importantly Jesus? And would you unpack this passage and make it clear for us? A very strange passage if we're honest. Uh, Very... um, weird in some ways. Would you help through your spirit take this and apply it to our hearts so that we would be changed? We ask that you would do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Were you listening to the passage as I read it? That's a, 
that's a good question, isn't it? Because it's, it's, tempt, it's tempting when the reading of the passage to kind of check out a little bit. Some of you have read this passage your entire life. Were you listening? If you were listening, whether you've read this passage a hundred times or this is your first time to hear it this morning, if you were listening, you had to have been saying, what in the world is happening here? And can there possibly be anything in this passage for us who live in 2019 when a passage like this, at worst, it just seems weird and wacky if we're honest, and at best, most of us have no other uh, conception of the Holy Spirit than something that's just an inward experience and we make it all about us and it seems extremely personal. You see, for most of us, and particularly in our tradition, we don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. Our tradition does not know what to do with tongues of fire and mighty rushing winds and the term filled with the Spirit. And so we're going to do much like we did last week. I just want to ask the question, so what? You know, I like to ask that question. What, in, what is the significance of Pentecost for us sitting here in 2019? What does it mean and why does it matter? Pentecost matters because it means three things this morning. It means that we have new hope. It means that you have new life and you have new community. New hope, new life, and new community. Let's look at number one. Pentecost matters because it brings you hope. Look at verse one. and I'll, There's a lot here in these verses, and so uh, hang in there with me as we unpack some of these incredible things. Uh, this morning, but if you look at verse one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, uh, they were all together in one place. Who is the they? Well, the they. Remember, context is king when you study your Bible, and so take you back up to verse fifteen. It's these hundred and twenty followers at this time of Jesus uh, are meeting in a room. That is who the they is. Pentecost. What what does that mean? Why is that significant? And why did God choose this day to pour out His Spirit? Pentecost means 50. It was a Jewish harvest feast that took place 50 days after Passover. Why is it significant? Well, because Pentecost was a celebration of God's provision of the law. It was the celebration of an event in Israel's history when 50 days after Passover, remember what Passover celebrated? It was celebrating when God... took them out of slavery from Egypt. And 50 days after that, God gathered his people uh, under the leadership of Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. And remember, Moses goes up the mountain, and when he gets on top of the mountain, what does God give Moses? The Ten Commandments. And he gives them ultimately to the people. What were the Ten Commandments? It was, in, very simply, it was God's way of saying, this is what it looks like to love me. And this is what it looks like. Look at the Ten Commandments and what it looks like to love your neighbor. It was God's way of saying, this is the kind of community that I'm creating and that I want my people to be. Connect the dots to the New Testament. Okay? Remember, everything points to Jesus in the Bible. So connect this to where we are now in the Scriptures in the book of Acts chapters 1 and 2. Moses ascends to the mountain and he brings down the Ten Commandments. Now who ascends? Jesus ascends. And he doesn't ascend to a mountain. He ascends into heaven and he's the greater Moses, you see. 
Uh, He's uh, the new Moses, and he ascends, and by fire and wind, he sends not the Ten Commandments. He sends something better. He sends his Spirit to come and write the commandments and the law on our hearts. And he now lives inside of us and makes us into people who love God and love other people. In other words, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost is ultimately about Jesus and about his work that he is doing and the healing that he is bringing through his spirit. And I think that's really significant because that's not the way people often talk about the Holy Spirit. When you hear talks about the Holy Spirit, and even this passage, people make it all about them. If you are someone who's filled with the Spirit, you're not talking about yourself and how you're doing it and what it sounds like and all those sorts of things. Someone who's filled with the Spirit is someone who's filled with Jesus. They're obsessed with Jesus, filling everything that Jesus taught in John 16 when he said the job of the Holy Spirit is to point people to me. And so someone who's filled with the Spirit makes much of what Jesus has done and the renewal that he's bringing when he returns. You draw attention to him, not yourself. Secondly, Pentecost is significant because it's a harvest feast. It was called the Festival of the First Fruits. And the First Fruits Festival is when the first fruits of the harvest, the beginning of the harvest would come in, and it was a sample of what was to come later in droves. And so why did God pour out his spirit on this day? Well, because that's exactly the way the spirit was going to come into the world. God is saying, I'm going to give you a foretaste. I'm going to give you at Pentecost just a sampling of what is going to come in spades in the future. Think of it like earnest money. If you've bought a house or know about buying a house, you're asked to put down earnest money. And it's cash, normally $1,000 or so, that you put down up front to hold the house while you are making a decision whether or not you're going to buy it. In other words, it's a promise that, hey, here's a thousand and there's more cash where that came from. And that's what we see going on here. The Holy Spirit is a promise and a deposit and a guarantee that there's more to come. That this is just the beginning. And you see, that's important because the Bible says that in Genesis chapter 3, the world was blown to bits because of sin. Everything was subject to decay from that moment forward, and we could think of a thousand examples from your own physical health declining to all the chaos you see in the world. Everything is falling apart. And the prophets come, and God promised a time through the prophets when everything would be repaired. When uh, order would uh, give, uh, when chaos would give way to order, when all the wrongs in the world would be corrected, when all the wounds that you've experienced would be healed. And the disciples, remember last week, they thought that that was happening now. When God poured out his spirit, that that was going to happen. What the disciples, they didn't understand the nature of the kingdom. They didn't understand that God's repair work came in two phases what theologians have called the already and the not yet. The first phase arrived with Jesus' coming and with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The second phase will happen at the end of time when Jesus returns in glorious power and he puts an end to the decay once and for all. When everything will be made new, including your body, 
if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Right now you have the Holy Spirit and it's a guarantee, a guarantee that a harvest is coming. Do you see how that might give you hope? How Pentecost might give you hope on a Tuesday afternoon when your life's coming apart? It gives you hope because it's a guarantee and it's like Jesus is saying here, write it down. Mark it down. The world will not always be full of sadness and brokenness and chaos. Because Pentecost is a guarantee that Jesus is coming back and he is going to renew the earth and make all the sad things come untrue. You think that might give you hope on a Tuesday afternoon? You see why Pentecost matters for your life today? Secondly, Pentecost matters because it brings new life. Look at verses 2 and 3. We see the wind and the fire fall down from heaven. And in the Bible, when you see wind and fire show up, it's always God. Let's look at the significance of those two things, wind and fire. Notice, let's start with the wind. Notice it doesn't say it was a mighty rushing wind. What does it say? It was like a mighty rushing wind. And I think that's important. And the reason why is because they didn't mistake this as some random wind gust that came along and they thought, oh, it's God and we're going to over-spiritualize it. No, it really happened. Something physically happened and everyone experienced it. And it says it came down from heaven. And one of the things I learned this week that opened this passage up to me was the fact that both the Hebrew and Greek words used here can refer to either physical wind or to the Spirit of God. And so let's think about that. That's not an accident. Because if you think about the Old Testament, where there is movement and wind and physical air, it's often portrayed as aspects of the Spirit's work. Think about the Spirit hovering over creation and then God creating and bringing order out of chaos. Think about Ezekiel with the valley of dry bones. And Ezekiel was instructed to call on what? Wind. To come and breathe life into the dry bones so that they could go from being dead to being made alive. And then the Lord interprets the vision in Ezekiel 37. I will put my spirit... I will put my wind in you so that you might live. In other words, the sound of the wind was a signal to them that the spirit had arrived, the spirit that makes dead people alive. The wind was the breath of God breathed into the people of God making a new creation. That's amazing. What about the fire? Tongues of fire appeared to them. And the image of fire is very significant in the Bible as well. And again, we could think of a hundred places where we see this, but think about Exodus chapter 3. When God shows up to tell Moses that he wants him to lead the people out of slavery, how does he appear? Fire. It's the burning bush. Second Chronicles chapter 7, Solomon's going to build the temple. And what was the temple? The place where God dwelled with his people. He builds the temple. He dedicates it. And you know what it says? Fire came down from heaven 
and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And then we get to the New Testament and we're thinking, okay, where's the temple now? And Jesus says, I'm the temple. Tear down this temple. In three days, it will rise again. He's saying, I am the presence of God. And then we get to Acts chapter 1 and Jesus ascends. And so we're left thinking, okay, so where is the temple of God now? Jesus has ascended. He was the temple. Verse 3. The divine fire rested, notice how intentional, rested on each one of them. We We should just shut it down and pray and go home. You see what this is saying? Luke is saying that the same fire in the burning bush, God, that filled the glory of the Lord that filled the temple and came down as fire, now resides and has filled the hearts of every believer. And so it makes sense, doesn't it? Why, John the, why Luke would say in his gospel, John the Baptist came and he baptized water, but Jesus comes and he bad, baptizes with Holy Spirit and what? Fire. Friends, this is, this is a game changer if we can get our minds around this. It's saying that divine fire has come down on not just the apostles and not just the really spiritual people out of the 120, but on every believer in that room. And it's making very clear that now, guess who's the temple of God? You are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's not talking about the whole church. Every individual woman, man, and child that believes in Jesus is now the temple of the living God. You are inhabited by divine fire the Holy Spirit. And yet we live such defeatist, powerless, and hopeless lives. See, friends, Pentecost is significant because it means that you have divine fire. You have the Holy Spirit power in your life, and it's not a power that makes you leap tall buildings in a single bound. It's a power, think about the wind, that comes into dead people and gives them life. That takes people that are in darkness and gives them life and takes them into the light. And once he makes your dead heart alive, he begins to change you. That's what the power does. The Holy Spirit power makes you more like Jesus. That's good news. And that's good news because it means that you can really change this morning. What is the thing that you hate about yourself? Jesus says that you can change. And it also means that God's, that change is not your job, it's God's job. It also is good news because it means that the Holy Spirit is more, and this is really good news to me, the Holy Spirit is way more interested in you changing and becoming like Jesus than you are. And that's what he wants to do in your life. Have you ever seen the show Restaurant Impossible on the Food Network? It's the premise of the show is this famous chef named Robert Irvine, and he's a businessman and restaurant owner. And he intervenes on these restaurants that are basically coming apart and failing financially. And he's given 48 hours and $10,000 cash to turn the restaurant around. And they have these episodes, they call ambush episodes, where the person has a restaurant and they think it's going great. 
but it's dying. And the people, someone close to them, a friend or a co-worker, secretly calls Robert Irvine and has them come in and intervene. And in one of these episodes, a middle-aged woman by the name of Jenny uh, has built this restaurant from the ground up. It's her baby. But it is failing financially. Robert Irvine shows up, and at first she's really excited to see him, but she's also a little nervous because she's thinking, I don't know that I want much to change. This is mine. And Robert Irvine shows up and starts saying, what's that smell? It smells awful in here. And she goes, there's no, there's no smell. Uh, and these decorations, they're straight out of the 70s. They're awful. And she goes, what do you mean? This place looks great. The food is bad. Oh, the food. And she goes, no, it's not. And so he immediately gets his team of people, and they start doing all this work. And she stops him and says, wait a minute. Now, any changes you make, we're going to discuss this, right? And he says, absolutely not. I'm in complete control for the next 48 hours. Whatever I say goes, there will be no discussion. And she actually starts crying. Because she is so scared of change. And for the next 48 hours, he's changing all these things and parts of the restaurant that she thought was really good and that she thought uh, were healthy. He's tearing them down and changing them. And at one point, she basically says, you are destroying me and my restaurant. And he looks at her and says, trust me. I know what I'm doing. I'm the expert. I have more wisdom than you do. I have more experience than you do. And I am actually bringing life to this dying restaurant. Does that sound familiar? Anybody else here this morning think that you know what's best for your life and how it is that you need to change? You see, we, like this woman, we're often convinced of the things that we think will bring us health and we cling tightly to things. And they're not things that have to do with a restaurant. They're things like money and power and popularity and career and pleasure. And we hold on to those things thinking they will bring us life. But think about the story. They're actually killing us and destroying us. And the Spirit comes down into your life and says, as Martin said, and I love it, I'm the divine line leader. Get behind me. That's what Pentecost means. I am now in charge of your life, and I have filled up your life, and I know what I'm doing, and I'm the expert, and I know it feels like death, and it feels upside down, doesn't it? But I know what I'm doing, and I am making you into the image of Jesus, someone who is beautiful and someone who is better than you are right now. And we hear this, and I think lots of you would say, yes, I agree with everything you're saying. That sounds good. But let me ask you about your prayer life. If we were to examine your prayer life, in my prayer life, this week, what would we find? You know what we would find? That 90% of our prayers are, God, fix my circumstances. God, get me the good grade that I need to get in. Get me that job. Solve my problems, fix my kids, close the deal, sell my house, fix my marriage. How often do you go and say, no, God, fix me. Remake me. 
change me. You see, we think, and the culture just screams this at us. The culture says the problem's outside of you. It's not you. The problem's out there. And not only that, you have the power in you to fix yourselves. And so you don't need help. Friends, that's a lie. You want the power of this Holy Spirit that we've read about of Pentecost to explode into your life? The first thing you've got to do to tap into this power is to admit that there's something wrong with you called sin. And you cannot fix it. And then you go before God and you say, Holy Spirit, remake me. Change me. Thirdly, Pentecost matters. Because it means new community. Look at verses 4 and 11. You see, this is interesting because normally when Christians over the years have talked about this passage, we normally focus and zero in on the tongues part and we start asking questions. Well, should I speak in tongues? Does that make me more spiritual? How do I do it? What's it like? That's not the point that Luke is making. That's not the point of this passage. And likewise, I think it's important that we be careful here. The tongues of Pentecost are not like the tongues we see in the rest of the Bible in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, uh, where the Apostle Paul assumes when the tongues are spoken that you won't understand and you'll need an interpreter. It's different than here. Because in Acts chapter 2, everyone understood. Because they were speaking the tongues were in their own native language. And what do they talk about when they start speaking? Well, they talk about what the Spirit shows them, and notice what the Spirit shows them. They don't talk about healing. They don't talk about themselves. They don't talk about their own well-being and a peaceful, easy feeling. Look at verse 11. What do they talk about? They declare the mighty works of God. That word means the miraculous acts of God in history. And so in the Old Testament, it would be the Red Sea where God delivered his people. In the New Testament, it would be the miraculous way that God saves his people through Jesus coming into the world with, in flesh and living the life that we could never live and dying the death we deserve on the cross, saving us, salvation miraculously. And so to sum it up, what are they talking about? They're talking about the gospel. They're preaching the gospel, and we see that in Peter's sermon after this. And now insert everything I said in point one. If you're a spirit-filled person, you don't make much of yourself. You don't draw attention to yourself. You draw attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. You'll find, I'm amazed by the Bible. I've told you this last week. Please pray that I would continue to be. But in in verse 9, hang with me here, you have the... The list of nations. And where do you see the list of nations before this? Do you remember? Genesis chapter 10. And then right after that, in Genesis chapter 11, you have the Tower of Babel. You remember that story where the people start building this tower up to God in order to form a new religion without God? And what does God do? Does he like that? No, he actually judges the people. But you remember how he judged them? They had one language, and, he, and, and they couldn't understand one another. He sent them into mass confusion, and they had to eventually give up the building project. And the point of that story was that human pride and arrogance uh, had divided the human race. 
Fast forward to Pentecost. You see the list of, isn't this amazing? You see the list of nations show up again. And now this time, all the different languages are represented and they could understand one another. Some have called this the reversal of Babel. I think it's better called uh, the healing of Babel because notice he's not bringing them back under one uh, tongue and nation, but it's one message that's going out in many different languages. The gospel is such incredible news that different cultures and races and tongues can gather around it as one. I don't, this is absolutely amazing to me because think about the context before this. You've got these disciples, 120, that are in this room, hunkered down and praying, confused, thinking, what is happening? Our leader, Jesus, just ascended into heaven. We thought this was it. He's telling us that we're going to get the Spirit. This makes no sense to us. And then without expectation, the wind blows, the fire comes down, and they speak and proclaim the mighty works of God, which we've said it's Jesus and the gospel in his miraculous act of salvation, and they proclaim it all over the world. Look at verse 5. People from all over the known world are in town for this festival. And if you keep reading, verse 41, if you have your Bible open, 3,000 of them were saved. And where do these people go after Pentecost? It's not a trick question. They go back to their homes. When the feast is over. So do you see what God did in this one event? In this one event, when his disciples were hunkered down, hopeless, in a room, God in one event takes the gospel to the known world, to the every corner of the world, in one event. At Pentecost, something new was happening. God was establishing a new community because by this deliberate act, God was making sure that no culture can take precedent or race can take culture over any other culture in the Christian faith. No culture can look at everyone else and say, this is the dominant culture, this is the original culture, and everyone else is simply secondary and second-class citizens. No, when you're filled with the Spirit, it relativizes your background. It doesn't matter how you grew up anymore. That's why with Christianity you see different cultures and races and languages and social customs and music styles and political parties. They all come together under Jesus. And listen, your background doesn't dissolve in Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But it does get demoted. It does take a back seat and it is judged by the gospel. The point of this passage is not that it, and it it is to show you the nature of the kingdom of God. The point here is to show you that it doesn't matter in God's kingdom whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, or Asian. Friends, when the Spirit shows up, and this is one of the ways you know that you're filled with the Spirit, you start to you drop your cultural hangups, and you start to move towards other people and develop friendships with people that are not like you. That's one of the surest signs. Scott Sauls, he's a pastor, a PCA pastor in Nashville, and I've heard him tell this story about a uh, first-time visitor to his church named Janet. Janet was a recovering heroin addict, and she came. She was trying to get her life back on track, 
uh, came to visit the church, first-time visitor, dropped her two boys off in the nursery, and she came, listened to the sermon and part of the service, and then went, and there was a line to pick up their, her boys in the nursery, and a nursery worker pulled her over uh, to the side and said, yeah, we had a little trouble with your boys in the nursery. Uh, they were fighting with all the other kids, and not only that, uh, they destroyed several of the toys that belonged to the church. And so keep in mind the picture here, all these kids, all these parents, um, and she goes and grabs their boys and starts screaming and starts scolding them, and at one point screams and bellows out the loudest cuss word that you've ever heard in a church. She was deeply ashamed. Wouldn't you be? Grabs her kids, runs out the door, feeling like such a failure, failure after trying to get her life back on track. And they thought, there's no way in the world we're ever going to see this woman again. Well, Scott Sauls didn't know this, but the nursery worker called the church office on Monday and asked if Janet had signed in to the visitor's notebook. And, of course, she had signed into the notebook and, um, and left her contact information. And so this nursery, nursery worker decided to write her a quick note. And so she wrote to Janet and said, Janet, I am so glad that you and your boys visited our church. Oh, and about the little exchange when you picked them up from the nursery. Let me just say that I found it so refreshing that you would feel the freedom to speak with an honest vocabulary like that in church. I'm really drawn to honesty, and you're clearly an honest person. I hope that we can become friends. Love, the nursery worker. Guess who showed up the next week? True story. Janet showed up. And she showed up the Sunday after that, and 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 she eventually became the nursery director for the church. That smells like Jesus to me. That smells like the Holy Spirit, someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit. Because one of the surest signs that you're filled with the Holy Spirit is that uh, when you come to a place like this, you don't just get inspired, which you do, but that's not it. You leave this place and you try to live out the gradual undoing of the curses that have divided the human race. See, being filled with the Spirit means that the walls start to come down. The barriers start to come down in your life, and you start to move towards people that aren't like you. Is that happening in your life this morning? I hope so, because it means that you're filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these beautiful truths that we see in your Word. We need you now to take your Spirit and to press them down. Forgive us for making uh, how we make everything about us, uh, for living, and forgive us for living such hopeless and powerless lives. And I ask that you would change us this morning, even as we come to the table. It's a means of grace. Change us uh, through the bread and through the cup and make us more like you. And move us, send us out from this place to move towards people uh, that aren't like us. In Jesus' name, amen.